listening to another episode of the Beulah Girl podcast. For links, related resources, and even more encouragement, visit BeulahGirl.com. Hi, friend. Thanks for tuning in. This is the Beulah Girl podcast, and I'm Carol Whitaker, your host. We are coming full circle in our study. We've talked about many lessons related to Ruth, but we've been focusing these last few weeks on talking about lessons we can draw from Ruth on trust, surrender, and healing. And I want us to look at Ruth 4 and unpack some ideas in Ruth 4 relating to just persevering on the course that God has for us. Often when trials come at us from every angle and they don't stop, we don't see a fulfillment of the promise God has for us right away that we can easily lose hope. And within Ruth 4, just as there is hope that we can find in other places within Ruth, we find a great deal of encouragement for us when we're in those places where we're just too tired to even go on. And we say, Lord, I just don't know that I can take another step. This is harder than I thought it would be. The challenges are much more daunting and the sacrifices are greater than I imagined. How do you expect me to keep going? And within Ruth 4, we find just an encouraging text that we can look at and say, okay, here are again, some challenges that came up in the lives of some individuals here. And this is what they did in this situation. And here are some lessons that we can apply so that we too can arrive at all God has for us. I think we would all say that, yes, we want to, we want to arrive at what God has promised us. We want the good God has in store for us, but it's often easy to lose sight of that when we're on the actual journey and the way there is harder than we could have imagined. When we bought our first house, now this wasn't, we actually bought a, a townhome after our first apartment, but our first actual house, I guess what you would call a single family home, we looked for a long time for that particular house. In fact, we probably looked at, I would say almost 20 some houses, maybe even 30. And up to the point of being even able to look for a house, we wanted to sell our townhome. There were some challenges associated with selling our townhome. And our townhome was on the market for a good nine months with one realtor and it didn't sell. It didn't get any offers at all. And then we relisted it later and we were able to sell it, but there were some challenges there. So it was kind of a long journey. And then when we actually were house hunting, we didn't find anything we liked until sort of we had looked at exhausted a lot of options and we finally found a house we loved. But when we put in the offer for it, we were shocked because the seller didn't even respond to our offer. We didn't know that much about real estate at the time. And we thought, well, we'll just put in a, a an offer lower than the asking price and just see what the seller is willing to negotiate with us. And the seller was apparently either offended by our offer or just thought it was a joke and didn't even respond. And so in the days that was following the offer, we really, really wanted the house, but we didn't know if we were going to be able to negotiate a deal with the seller. And so we scrambled with our real estate agent, put in a more aggressive offer. We offered full price and we were able to negotiate a deal at last But even after we put in the offer, we still had a lot of steps to take. We had to put in the right documents for getting the loan. We had to go to several meetings. There, of course, were documents necessary 
to close on the house with a lawyer. And then we had our own closing of our own house, moving all of our stuff out of one house and then into the other, you know, all of the details associated with moving. And these were, of course, just not very fun tasks, but each task that we were required to do, we couldn't wait to get past it because we knew the prize that lay at the end of the journey. And that was that we could be the homeowners of this amazing home. And so even though there were a lot of documents we needed to submit, a lot of steps that we needed to take, and it was very inconvenient, you know, if you've ever moved that it's really not a fun process. We were willing to do that because we wanted the end goal of being able to move in the house. And we did. And it was a really happy moment when we sat in the lawyer's office, we signed the last paper and they handed us the keys. And it was almost one of those, this is too good to be true moments. Now, since that point, we spent eight years in that house and we've since moved on. And our move after that was just as cumbersome as many moving parts, I would say, as with our first, um, our first house sale and moving into our, our first house. But again, we had to meet the requirements to move into where we are now. And we were motivated to do what we needed to do because we needed to move and be closer to my husband's new job. So I say this because the path to what God has for us is full of roadblocks. It's full of surprise turns and twists that we never expected. And it's requires our perseverance to get through. And Ruth 4 instructs us in this. In Ruth 4, Boaz works to make his desire to marry Ruth a reality. Now we've learned in the previous chapter, if you've been following along, that Ruth is a widow. She has journeyed with Naomi from her homeland of Moab. She has left behind her gods, her family, and she has followed Naomi and Naomi's God to Bethlehem where she has settled. They are widows, so they have a very challenging status at the time. The laws of the time did provide that widows could glean in the fields, but again, she just has limited opportunities as a widow. They are gleaning to be able to feed themselves, and they need a breakthrough in their situation. And what I love about scripture is that you may be listening to this and thinking, I'm, I'm not a widow or I'm not living in Bible times or I'm not gleaning wheat in a field, but we can all relate to not having enough or having to be dependent on someone else or being in circumstances that really squeeze us where we need someone else to really step in and do something on our behalf. We need a rescue. We need something to change and we can't do for ourselves what needs to happen. And we really need God to be able to orchestrate some things to change that situation. So we can all relate to that. So in Ruth 4, Ruth has been gleaning in the field of Boaz, and she has asked him in chapter 3 to be her guardian redeemer. The law allowed for, at this time, if a husband died, that his brother could marry the widow and thus continue the line of the family. But if there was no brother that a near male relative could do this and preserve the line of the family. And also because women's rights were so limited during this time and they couldn't just go out and find a job or have the same status as a man in the society that this would provide for 
the women in need, except that a male relative could refuse refuse to be the guardian redeemer. Um, they didn't have to do it. And so Ruth asks Boaz if, as a relative of Elimelech, her father-in-law, if he will be her guardian redeemer, and he agrees to do it. So it looks very bright. However, we learn that Boaz is not actually the closest male relative under the law. There is one that's actually closer that Naomi and Ruth didn't know about. So he agrees to take care of the matter and do his best, but we don't know how things are going to turn out. So that's how we start off in chapter four of Ruth. And I want to just read it to you. You can follow along. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took 10 of the elders of the town and said, sit here. And they did so. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, Then I cannot redeem it, because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilian, and Milan. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today, you are witnesses. And I want to skip down to verse 13. It says, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son, the woman said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The woman living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And I've read most of it, but then... What I'm not going to read is that the chapter then ends with the genealogy of David and shows us how Boaz is the father of Obed and then Obed the father of Jesse and Jesse the father of David and how they're in the same line. So I want to just take some lessons from this particular section and look at the lessons we can learn about tackling the mundane task in front of us to get to the good house. God has for us. So the first point I want to draw is getting to what God has promised involves obstacles. Ruth and Boaz, as we discuss, they both desire to marry one another. Boaz consents on the threshing floor to be Ruth's guardian redeemer, but though he is willing, he does not have the right under the law to redeem the property and, and acquire Ruth as his wife unless the closer relative refuses to redeem the land. And 
honestly, I'm just going to say here, we talked a little bit about in an early episode how women couldn't inherit land, that it was passed on to male relatives, and that's part of the problem. So it is a little confusing here how it does say that Naomi has land to sell. There are a lot of different commentaries and explanations of this. Whatever the case, what is clear in this instance is that most likely the land of her husband was mortgaged during the famine and it has to be bought back. And so he's just presenting to those that are there with him at the town gate proposing this idea that the land needs to be bought. And so it needs to be redeemed, but it does have to be bought back, most likely because it's been mortgaged away. But it is interesting the wording he uses, and there's a lot of explanations for that that we're not necessarily going to go into, but it's just basically saying that the land is available to be redeemed. So Boaz going into the conversation at the gate with the male relative, he pulls the male relative in and 10 other elders because that's how business was done at the time. Though he doesn't really know how the situation is going to turn out. He just goes ahead and tackles it head on. We see that he gets up the very next day after talking to Ruth. He goes to the town gate. He gathers the 10 witnesses that are necessary. He meets with the relative. He doesn't wait until the following week or month. He doesn't complain to friends about all the steps he will have to take to marry Ruth or cower at the prospect of initiating a conversation with the other relative about Naomi's land. In addition, we get the sense that he has thought through before going to the gate, that he's thought through about how he's going to approach the situation. Because even though he immediately suggests to the relative that he is the guardian and redeemer, we see that he inserts this other detail about Ruth and we get the idea that he most likely knew that the relative would back off once he knew that Ruth was involved. And so what we can learn from this is that even though Boaz and Ruth were clearly moving in God's plan, that God was orchestrating that they be together, that they were going to bear a son that was going to be in the lineage of David, in the lineage of Jesus Christ, that even though they had this amazing purpose and destiny and they were meant to be together, that there were, even after both were willing to engage in this plan, after all the obstacles that Ruth had to even go through up until that point in leaving behind her homeland, in taking on this status as a widow, gleaning wheat, hard work in a field, and then approaching this man that she didn't know how he was going to react to her. All these obstacles. And then there's this other obstacle that presents itself with with the relative who very well could marry Ruth. And not only that, but if we pause at the beginning of Ruth 4, the other obstacle is that the relative actually agrees to redeem the land before he knows that Ruth is involved. He agrees to redeem it. So if we were to pause at the point, at either point, if we, if Boaz had simply stopped when he heard Ruth's desire to marry him and for him to be the garden redeemer, he could have paused and said, oh, well, it will never happen because there was another relative closer to me. He could have stopped there or Again, at the town gate, when the relative offers to buy the land, again, he could have easily 
just assumed that the deal wasn't going to happen. But we see that he pushes through. And though he does play a willing part in the events that transpire, it's God who ultimately orchestrates the events in Boaz's favor. The second lesson that we can gain here from this passage is God's blessings come with a cost. The other relative agrees to redeem the land when he first hears it as available and sees the land will be an asset to him. However, when he learns that the redeeming of the land includes marriage to Ruth, he withdraws his offer. And this is what he says. He says, I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. And that's verse six. In other words, he just says, I can't afford it. It doesn't tell us all the reasons why he believes that his estate will be endangered. But we can only guess that perhaps after he contemplates the cost of purchasing the land and supporting more family members, maybe he already has a family and it it will be complicated to bring home Ruth and add her to the family, Ruth and Naomi. Or maybe he simply is opposed to his inheritance being divided up among more people or if he and Ruth have children having to divide up the inheritance among more family members, whatever the case, he just decides that the cost is too high. And with his refusal, Boaz is free to redeem the land and acquire Ruth as his wife. And this part really stuck out to me that the relative was so eager to receive the inheritance that could have been his was really supposed to be his under the law. He was so eager to receive it until he learned the cost associated with it. And I believe that we all can have that same reaction, that we want what God has for us. We want the promises that he has given us. But when we learn of the cost associated with what he is giving us, that we often, like the relative, have the same reaction saying, wow, this cost is too high. That God doesn't reveal all to us what our journey will entail when we first go down a particular path. And then as we see what is entailed, we can easily say, well, this is just too much. I've, I've had that conversation with God of, Lord, I didn't expect you to ask me this of me. I didn't know that this putting this aside or giving this up or laying this down would be part of following you and it can really be a sticking point for us and we may may just say you know what this is too costly and I need to hold on to what I have maybe God's asking us to step away from a job or maybe he's asking us to let go of some kind of asset we have like a car or some other thing and we're saying wow I can't Lord I can't and it's too costly and Walking with him, it can cause some very uncomfortable friction in relationships. It can cause others to despise us. It may cause us to have to give up on some dream that we we thought would happen a certain way. And yet, what we see in the story is that the end result is so worth it. If we look at Boaz, he does give up. He's willing to part with whatever is necessary to buy the land and acquire Ruth as his wife. But what he parts with is small in comparison to what he gains. Boaz enjoys a prominent part in this story and his good deeds are declared for all to read about. But the relative, on the other hand, who 
ironically is so intent on preserving his own inheritance, he's not even given a name in the story. And we might say the message is fair, is, is crystal clear. Whatever we give up to serve God will be richly compensated beyond our wildest expectations, but we must first surrender to God's plans. So what we're holding on to, we say, Lord, I'm not giving this up. And yet what we have in our hands is so small in comparison to what God is going to give us. I am recalling right now, if you've read Joanna Gaines, who Chip and Joanna Gaines, everybody knows them from Fixer Upper, the the TV show. But if you read their story, Joanna Gaines, before she had a TV show, before she had a furniture line, before she had a home decor line in Target and a magazine and all of the projects she now has that are so successful, before she had all of that, she had a small home decor shop. And after the birth of her child, I can't remember if it was the first one or second, but things obviously got more complicated and she felt like she just needed to close the shop and focus on being a mom for a while and just felt like God was asking her to just lay that down for a while and that more better would be coming down the road, but that she needed to give that up. And it was hard because she loved that little store and that's her passion is hospitality and making people feel really warm and welcome. And she does that through decorating, but she also loves to cook and just that's kind of her thing. And so she laid it down and for several years, I believe she didn't have that outlet and she, you know, she worked with her husband and they worked on a home remodeling types of projects and flipping houses and things. Um, but then look what God has done with their life. They have a platform, a national platform and their, you know, their store went from being a store to the remodeling business to now they have, you know, of course, uh, a huge influence. They've done TV shows. She writes books now. She has a magazine. So all of that went beyond, but it first involves surrendering to God's plans. The third point I want to bring about from this passage is God's blessings not only benefit us, but also glorify God. After Boaz overcomes the obstacles stand in the way, talking to the relative and she, of course, too, has have to, had to overcome obstacles up to this point. God blesses them with a son, Obed. And he's not only a blessing for Boaz and Ruth, but he's, his reach goes beyond his parents. Quite fittingly, his name means serving or servant. And when I look at that name, I think how fitting because truly God, Obed serves God's purposes. We see as... He's included in the genealogy of David that Obed, his name is included there and that he, his birth is more than just a blessing for Boaz and Ruth and Naomi, but it's a blessing for the whole community. Later in the passage, the women in town say this to Naomi after the birth of Obed. Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Later in verse 16, the women identify Obed as Naomi's son. I mean, why are they even saying what they're saying? They're identifying just the joy that she's getting from Obed and that Obed is nourishing that broken hearted soul that 
experienced all that pain after her husband and sons were gone and he's helped to restore her joy and caused her to be optimistic about the future. But again, it's not Naomi or Ruth and Boaz that they're the only ones nourished. Obed, as we learn, has a much bigger plan. He becomes the father of Jesse, the father of David, and Obed is in the lineage of the Messiah. So that God had a plan in bringing these two together, not only because Ruth was in need and needed a rescue out of widowhood and Naomi too needed support after her husband and her sons were, you know, after they died in a society that limited very much what women could do. So there was a rescue for them, but then we see that the plan really went beyond this. I want to read to you what John Piper of DesiringGod.org says of the glory that Obed's birth brings to God. So again, it was more than, than just fulfilling their wishes. It was about bringing glory to God with his birth. If this story of Ruth just ended in a little Judean village with an old grandmother hugging a new grandson, Glory would be too big a word, but the author doesn't leave it there. He lifts his eyes to the forest and the mountain snows of redemptive history. God was not only plotting for the temporal blessing of a few Jews in Bethlehem, he was preparing for the greatest king that Israel would have, David. And the name of David carries with it the hope of the Messiah, the new age, peace, righteousness, freedom from pain, and crying and grief and guilt. This simple little story opens out like a stream into a great river of hope. So while we often, if we're in a moment where we're saying, God, you've forgotten me or you've left me and you haven't come through the way I needed, you haven't fulfilled a promise yet, or I'm still waiting for whatever I'm waiting on, what we see from the birth of Obed here is that God has a broader view of how an event will impact those around us. And he's interested in more than just giving us what will bless us but he is going to give us what will also bless others and will also bring glory to his name. And so, you know, it's, it's natural for us to want a certain blessing or to want a promise fulfilled for the meeting of our needs in the moment or our wants in the moment, but God will wait till the exact right moment to best bless others as well and bring glory to his name. I want to wrap up by just saying that I started with a story about my house and quite honestly when I think about all the steps and the several month long process I guess it was probably a year and a half long process to finally get into a house because we had our house on the market our townhome for again as I mentioned nine months we went looking for homes for months and months and then, of course, just the necessary paperwork to get into the house, the first rejected offer. When I think of that whole long process, I just think, wow, that's just exhausting. Would I have it in me to do that right now? In a current season that I'm in, I'm the mom of three, and my husband has coached for the last, I think, 12 years, and he's gone a majority of the school year nights and weekends, many late nights and weekends. And I'm just 
bone weary tired. He got another degree last year and my three kids just sucked the life out of me. And I'm looking at this new year and I'm thinking to myself, I know that God has come through for me in facing obstacles in the past. And I know that I've been able to overcome those with his help. But how in the world did I even have the energy? Of course, God gave it to me, right? But right now, I just feel like what I have right now is just exhaustion that I feel overwhelmed. I feel, I was reading something the other day about how entering the new year can sometimes be a little bit scary because we may enter into it with some of the, we do enter into it a lot of times with some of the same old habits we wrestled with in the previous year that we were hoping we could overcome. And we're saying, you know, God, are you still, are you really going to use me with, with all of these things that I have going on? And sometimes a message like this about how we have obstacles to overcome and sacrifices we have to make can sometimes feel heavy because we may be thinking, I can't take anything else on. I, I don't even think I can overcome another obstacle. And also just reading about the heroic actions of Boaz here, Ruth, they have so much energy, it seems like, to do the will of God. They're just going joyfully into each task. And we're thinking, wow, how in the world did they do that? So what I think is important to note is that while they do provide a good example in the story that they were human and they participate in God's plan, but God is the true hero of the story. And so sometimes it's easy when we're thinking, okay, I've got obstacles in front of me to say, okay, I've got to get through them in my own strength, or I've got to just pull myself up by the bootstraps, but that's not really what it's saying. Yes, there are hard things that we're going to have to do, and we are going to have to discipline ourselves to do what God asks. But as John Piper says, the life of the godly is not a straight line to glory but they do get there. God sees to it. It's God who's going to see to it. And this is an excuse to not do the things that we need to do. But when we surrender to his plan, it is God who gets us there. And surrender for us in the moment may just look like saying, God, I don't even have the energy to get out of bed right now. Can you help me? I don't know that I can do the next thing you have for me. Can you give me the strength? Because it tells us in his word that he gives strength to the weary and he renews us. So that may be a surrender for us. Say, God, I want to do what you're asking, but I don't even have the energy to do it. What we should note in the story is Boaz, he was this amazing guy who got things done, but he was also older. And he even looks like he might have had some insecurities about that related to Ruth because it looks like in Ruth 3 that he may have even considered that they might be in a, you know able to marry, but then it seems like he maybe wasn't hadn't even gone down that road as a possibility because he thought he was too old, that he was considerably older and he might've thought he wasn't even a contender. In addition, Ruth was a Moabite. It's possible the other relative didn't want to marry her, not only for the reasons I mentioned, but because it was believed by many in the town, most likely that the reason that her husband even died was because she married a he married a foreigner and that was prohibited in the covenant now ruth again comes becomes a jew she follows the god of naomi and so she is no longer following and worshiping the gods that she was in in moab 
But again, that was an obstacle that maybe she could have just thought, okay, no one's going to marry me because I'm a Moabite. But again, she just trusted God and Boaz sees her virtuous character and sees that she's following God and it's not an issue for him. The other thing is Ruth was barren in her previous marriage for 10 years. Who would have thought that this older guy and someone who had a woman who had been barren in her previous marriage for 10 years would be able to produce a child in the line of the Messiah. God was obviously the one that enabled them to come together, but also conceive. It even tells us in Ruth 4.13 that God enabled Ruth to conceive. So just as God directed Ruth to work in Boaz's field, orchestrated the details of their union, that God was the one that enabled them to have a child. And chapter four ends with a genealogy and zooms out from their story to show us, I believe, the bigger picture of God's story in that it shows us the people that went before and after their son. And that is the point. All of what they did and we do serve a greater purpose beyond themselves and ourselves. While the thought can that God can use us for his big purposes can make us feel a lot of pressure to be perfect or to try to make things happen or to perform for God. That's not what God is asking. He's simply asking us to make ourselves available to him. And without God in the narrative, our best efforts are in vain. So therefore, the hope in the book of Ruth is this, that God will make happen what we cannot for purposes beyond our imagination. If we're tired, if we're feeling unfit and unworthy to do what he has asked, he will provide the strength for us to get through. Though our weaknesses may be the very obstacle we worry will stand in the way of his promises to us, we see that no obstacle is too big for God, and he delights in using the weak to display his glory. We may need to turn to him in this very moment and confess a weakness to him, a shortcoming we have, a habit we can't seem to break, fear that we're struggling with, or some other sin issue that he has pointed out to us. But even in our weakness, God still wants to use us and will use us if we are willing and available. We are not enough. We are woefully inadequate, but God will use us if we are willing. And the obstacles in our journey are not too great as long as we put the journey in his hands. So that is truly the message of Ruth. I hope all of you had a wonderful, relaxing Christmas and wonderful New Year's. And my prayer for you as you go into this new year is that you'll simply let God reveal to you what he wants to do in your life and be willing to let him use you. Let's just go ahead and pray. Lord, thank you for the amazing story of Boaz and Ruth. They were not perfect. They had limitations. And yet all of the obstacles that were in front of them, they overcame those with your help. And you enabled them to conceive a child that was not only a blessing to them, but was a blessing to others and who was in the line of Jesus. And who knows, Lord, what amazing things you want to do through us. So help us be willing. Help us not resist your plan. Help us to know that even the everyday things that don't seem like that big of a deal, that they are important, that those sacrifices we make, Lord, that we really don't want to give up certain things. But when we do, Lord, even if we have to pray our way through every second of the decision, that, Lord, you will replace 
and exceed our greatest expectation of that which we've had to give up. So help us know that every sacrifice is worth it. Every obstacle that is tough, that we'd rather not have to go through, that Lord, it's leading us closer and closer to the place you have for us, that ultimately you are the one who's going to get us there. So help us just rest in that and trust you with each step of the way. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.